Good morning. This morning we're going to continue on in our sermon series, Greater Than, as we walk through the book of Hebrews together. And up to this point, we've really seen God lay out for us through his word the reality that nobody and no thing is greater than Jesus. That in the midst of our trials and tribulations, that as we go through this broken world, that as we are faced with temptations and trials and struggles, that who we need to turn to and who we need to rest upon is Jesus Christ because nobody is greater than Jesus. When we look at the book of Hebrews, it's really divided into two sections. The lengthier of the two are chapters 1 through 10, and they're very theological in nature. They show us the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Then chapters 11 through 13 really lay out for us the application of the realities that we've seen put forth to us as followers of Christ in this reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the fact that there is none greater than Jesus. Now, the author of Hebrews has just kind of left off with this idea in verse 10 of chapter 5 that Jesus Christ is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, in the Jewish faith, the order of the priest didn't come in uh, the line of Melchizedek. It came in the line of Aaron. Now, what the author of Hebrews is about to lay out for the original audience and subsequently us this many years later is something that he desires for us to understand, for them to understand. But in verse 11 of chapter 5, it says, about this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. In other words, I want to teach you this truth about what it means that Jesus comes as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, and he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice and distinguish good from evil. And so today we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 20, in a message I've entitled, The Greater Maturity. The moment each and every one of us are born... Parents and doctors start to assess our growth or lack thereof. They assess our growth physically. They assess our growth emotionally. They, they uh, uh, assess our growth mentally, emotionally, and physically. Now, I have uh, two pretty young children. Uh, so I've got a seven-year-old, and I've got a soon-to-be three-year-old. And so I remember taking them not too long ago after they were born to their various checkups to be assessed along the way of checking to see where they are and where they have grown. And each time went in, I'm kind of competitive. You get, a, you get a piece of paper that says what percentile they are in and their weight and their height and then their head. For some reason, I was pulling for my kid to have a big head. I, I don't know. Just as long as he was like in the 90 percentile of anything, I'm good. The moment it started to slip a little bit, which you can guess what area he started to level out on as you look at his daddy. The weight issue, as he started to slip down and go a little bit further down the percentile, I mean, I found myself sometimes a little bit worried. Like, man, did he even study for this test? Do I need to put whey protein into his formula? Mama stopped me from doing it, but I debated, I prayed about it. You see, 
When we see individuals not growing in certain areas, it's cause for concern. But what about spiritual growth? Today, what we're going to do as we look at this passage of Scripture is we're really going to assess where we are spiritually and are we growing spiritually. You see, there are some things that can hinder us from growing and advancing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And today is going to be one of those moments where we stand against the doorframe and allow God to mark where we are so we can compare it to where we have been. Now, there are times that I've taken my children for those assessments or for those checkups, and it was the shot appointment. All mamas and daddies know about the shot appointment. You're prepared that they're, going to get, they're probably going to get about four shots that day. And you bring them there, and they just look at you as they're getting stuck with these needles. They just look at you like, how could you? You literally strapped me into a seat, drove me here. You drove me here. And you're telling me it's for my good while this individual pokes me over and over again with a sharp instrument. Look, can I tell you that when those things happen, they're for our children's good. As hard as they may be in those moments, they're for our good. As a church, we're going to get a few shots today. And I pray that everybody understands that we may feel a little bit of the sting of the needle, but it's for our good, it's for our health, and it is for our growth. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about Christians growing in their faith. First Peter 2, 1 through 3 says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, the things of God, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That there, there ought to be a growth process for each and every individual believer. That we ought to be growing, that we start off with the spiritual milk. And as we see in Hebrews chapter 5, that, that we need to progress and to uh, uh, move on from the milk to the more meatier matters of the things of God. Second Peter 3.18 talks about this reality. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. There's a commandment that is placed on each and every believer's life that we are to grow. That we are to grow in our faith, to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You're going to hear a lot about this over the coming weeks and the coming months and the coming years. Our discipleship team has been working hard of creating different discipleship pathways for individuals to get on. And ultimately, we identify that each individual, each follower of Jesus Christ is found in one of four areas. And it's a, a wheel. And we all grow and move along this wheel. When we are born again, we place our faith in Christ Jesus. Then we become an infant. And then as we grow, we become a child, and then we become an adult, and then hopefully we become a parent. In other words, we make disciples that know how to make disciples. We all are moving along that, that wheel. We all are called to eventually come to the point that we are making disciples. The idea that a disciple of Jesus Christ isn't making other disciples is completely foreign to Scripture. It's completely foreign. Christ spent three years with the 12, teaching them how they can make disciples who know how to make disciples who know how to make disciples. And so ultimately, we need to be assessing where we are growing in our faith, in our relationship with Jesus. Now, there are certain things that physically can stunt our growth, and there are certain things that spiritually can stunt our growth. 
in the, the medical world, it's called for a child, it's called a failure to thrive. If they're not getting the nutrients, if they're not getting the sustenance that they need, they can be diagnosed as having a failure to thrive. For us spiritually, if we're not getting the things of God on a daily basis, then we can fall victim and become spiritually found in the area that we have a failure to thrive. And uh, the book of Hebrews lays out five warnings or five things that can stunt the growth of a follower of Jesus Christ. We've seen two already in our passage today. We come to the third. The first one was found back in chapter 2. And these five things, it starts off in chapter 2. It says, be careful, don't drift from the word. All of the things that stunt the, 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 the growth of a believer are, are found in the neglect of God's word. I've often said if our church can fall in love with God's word to where we are spending daily time in God's word and allowing it, which is active and living and sharper than a double-edged sword, to minister to us, to be that mirror in our lives, and we are obedient to what it calls us to do, then we will be effective in our mission as individual believers and our mission as a church. God's word says, be careful you don't drift from the word. In other words, you neglect the word, that this has become something that ever so often I get into. I, I read it on occasion, but I, I really don't spend much time in it. I neglect it. If you neglect your marriage, if you, if you neglect your health, if you neglect anything in this world, there are repercussions and consequences. If you neglect God's word spiritually, there will be uh, consequences and repercussions. It goes on to say in chapter 3 that, an individual, be careful because if you start drifting away from the word, you're going to start doubting the word. Because if you're not spending time in, in God's word, then all you're listening to are the words of the world and the words of the fallen. And then you can start to doubt God's word. And then it brings us to the third warning, which we find here in verse 11, that produces a dullness towards the word. There's a sluggishness towards the word. There's, we listen with, with ears that want to be itched instead of a heart that wants to receive truth. And going on from that, then we start to despise the word in Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. That we, we don't want this because now it's putting demands upon our lives and calling us to be obedient, to live within certain boundaries that we want to throw off of us. And we want to start making the word of God fit in with our life instead of our lives fitting and reflecting the word of God. And then ultimately, as uh, uh, chapter 12 will say, it's just outright defiance of the word. And so we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, God's word says that God has spoken, and ultimately he's given us the greater means of revelation in his son, Jesus Christ, that God has spoken. Now he bookends that in chapter 12, verse 25, by saying, don't refuse the one who is speaking. So we see at the front of Hebrews, God has spoken ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Now don't refuse, Hebrews chapter 12, 25, the one that is speaking. Don't refuse him. In other words, what God is saying is, I have given you my word. What are you doing with it? I've given you my truth. Now, what are you doing with it? Are you being obedient to it or are you disobeying it? Are you refusing it or are you relying upon it? And so today we're going to look and allow God to examine our hearts and our lives to really assess this question. Are you growing in your faith? Are you advancing as a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you further along in your faith today than you were a year ago, than five years ago, 
than 10 years ago. And if it's not acceptable for our children physically, if we would say something, something is wrong, they're not, they're not advancing, they're not assessing, they're not where they should be at five years old, then it ought to give us just as great of a concern and pause if we assess spiritually where we are at and where we have matured to. And so that's what we are going to do today. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I did childish things. I spoke like a child and I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put off childish things. Can we say that spiritually? Look, there's a time, and you may be in that category, you may be a new believer that are in that infancy stage, that are growing and learning about the things of God. But listen, you can't stay there. If you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, you may be in that, that kid's category, but you can't stay there. Unfortunately, in the church today, we got a lot of Billy Madisons in the church. We got a lot of individuals that should be teaching, but they're, 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 back, they're back in kindergarten. They never left. They're not advancing. They're not growing. And there's something wrong with that. And what the author of Hebrews is going to lay out for us today, I pray, will be a way that we can assess that and grow from it. And so the first thing we see, verse 12 says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now the word child there in Greek is the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says, when I was a child, I did childish things. It's not talking about a baby baby. It's talking about roughly a three to four year old. Anybody got a three year old living with them in their home? Anybody? Oh, those are prayer requests. Though I'm one of them. I've got a three-year-old living in the house with me, and I'm telling you what, you can't pray for me enough. They, they used to talk about the terrible twos. I, I, don't, I don't know. He, he was cool at two. Three? I don't know what's happened. Man, I'll tell you what, just pray for me. So what he's saying is, you should be advanced. You, should, you, should, you shouldn't be still three years old spiritually. You should grow out of that. You should be progressing. You should be evolving from that. You should be growing as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that we see is a growing Christian is a contributor and not a consumer. A growing Christian. He says, you ought to be a teacher. You ought to be contributing to the body of Christ. But all you're doing is acting like a three-year-old, just consuming, just consuming. A growing Christian is a contributor and not a consumer. And I would say one of the greatest detriments of the Western church today is the Western church are producing nothing but consumers and not equipping contributors to build up the body of Christ. That what we see is that individuals are, are, are coming and they're consuming the things and the resources of the church, but they're not contributing to the work of the church. Let me tell you the difference between consumers and contributors. A consumer is a spectator. A contributor is a participant. A, a consumer is a spectator. A consumer is a fan in the stands. A participant is a player on the field. A consumer comes and just watches everything kind of happen and unfold around it. But a participant is an individual that says, I need to stand in the gap. We need individuals to serve in little community, our preschool area. It's a, it's a vital ministry of our church. 
It's vital. It's vital for individuals to learn at an age-appropriate level and for us to be able to come in here and to be able to dig into the deeper things of God and to focus in on that. We need individuals to step into that. We, we, we normally have on a Sunday 70 kids, kindergarten or below. 70. That's a lot of individuals, and we need individuals to step in and to help serve in that area. Individuals participate, participate with their time, their talents, and their treasure. That participate financially. Look, it's spiritually immature not to support the work of the church financially. Some people say, oh, Lord, there you go, talking about money. That's all the church wants is, is money. Look, it ain't your money, first off. It ain't my money. It ain't the church's money. It's God's money, and we're to be good stewards of it. But the, the devil has a lot of resources, the devil has a lot of resources. A lot of money goes to advance his kingdom. So why wouldn't we take the resources that God has blessed us with to help advance his kingdom? So a consumer is just a spectator, is not a participant. A consumer sits and soaks. A contributor goes and tells. For some individuals, the very last thing you need is another Bible study. It's the last thing you need. You haven't been obedient to the 32 you, you, you took last year. A consumer just sits and soaks, just, just takes note after note after note, just, just takes it in, just grows in head knowledge, but never goes and shares it with anybody at all. A contributor takes what God has placed on their heart, what God has shown them, what God has taught them, and goes and tells that to other individuals. Now, you may say, well, I haven't grown enough. I, I, I may not know enough. Listen, you start where you are, and you use what you know to go tell other individuals. In the seats around you, you should see one of these. This lays out for individuals how it is they can come to faith in Christ Jesus. Here's what you can do. You say, well, I just don't know how to share the gospel with somebody. Can you take this? Can you walk up to somebody that you know doesn't know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or start a conversation and find out if they do? And can you just put this in their hand and say, I'd love to give you something that has transformed my life, and I believe it will transform your life as well. Would you take time to read this, and if you have any questions would you follow up with me? And I'd be happy to try to answer them as best as I possibly could. Can you do that? This right here, that act of putting it in somebody's hand and just telling them this has transformed my life, I believe it can transform your life, could truly change somebody's eternity. Can you, can you do that? Can you contribute to the advancement of God's kingdom just by putting this in somebody's hand and saying, I believe that this can do in your life what it has done in my life as well? A consumer, now I'm fixing to clear up some parking problems. I got a feeling with this one. A consumer criticizes based off of preferences. Contributors appreciate and praise God for what he's doing in the church. Consumers, it's all about me. It's all about what you're going to get for me, what you're going to do for me. It's all about how hot the coffee is and where the donuts came from. And if it doesn't match up with my preference, then what ends up happening is a sign of spiritual immaturity as you walk through the doors of a church with a critical eye instead of an appreciative heart. You come in looking for things to nag about, looking for things to tear down. Oh, well, they didn't do this or, or this was that or, or, or whatever the case may be. Did I mention I got a three-year-old in my household? Have you ever had dinner or lunch or breakfast with a three-year-old? What do you want? What do you want for breakfast? 
I want a scrambled egg. All right. Hey, I can do that. I, I got you. Scramble. I'll even put a little cheese on it because I know how you love cheese. As soon as I set the plate down for him, oh, it's bloody murder. It's but I didn't want I didn't want eggs. I didn't want eggs. I I I I want apple jacks. No, that's not what you said. That's not what you said. I don't want the blue plate. I want the purple plate. It's a plate. The food, the food it just is to eat off of. And it's just not it's just just bloody murder. Just just throwing a fit because it's not exactly how they think it should be. When we're three-year-old, spiritually, we walk through the, the doors of the church, and what we want to do is we want to assess everything with a critical eye instead of living with an appreciative heart. We get the ability to gather together openly and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, without fear of individuals kicking down that door, arresting each and every one of us, and potentially beheading us. We have that freedom in this country right now. We ought to be appreciative of what it is that God is doing in the life of this church. Look, there may be some things in this church that aren't your preference. But can we not get so bogged down with those preferences? You know what I'd be more concerned about? I wish our church could be more concerned about it. And I will say, ultimately, that, that we are. As a whole, could our preference be, I prefer to see a baptism every Sunday. I prefer to see lost people come to faith in Christ Jesus every Sunday. I prefer to see more people get involved in community groups. I prefer to see more people serving. I prefer to see the church growing. Can we make that our preferences and leave all this other nonsense down? Because what the enemy will do is he'll come in and through critical eyes, he'll try to cause division in the church instead of strengthening the body so that we can advance the kingdom for his glory. He says that you ought to be teachers, but you're still children. Now, we come to a passage of Scripture in chapter 6 that has had many interpretations, many various interpretations, and laid out, different commentators have, have laid this out. Some, some individuals will just skip over these verses altogether because of the conundrum that they feel like maybe it produces. And what I'm talking about is mainly in verses 4 through 6. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Now, what is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, before we get in that, let's talk about a growing Christian. So a growing Christian stewards their salvation, not squander it. So I think we need to start with that principle before we start unpacking this passage. A growing Christian stewards their salvation. Just as God has given us our, 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 our financial means, has given us our time, our talents, our treasure, has given all, all of that comes from God, and we're called to be managers of that and good stewards of that, so too he has given us salvation, and we ought to be good stewards of that and not squander so in light of that, let's, let's unpack what it is that the author of Hebrews is saying here. Because some interpretations would say that what the author of Hebrews is talking about is the fact that you could lose your salvation. Now, I believe very clearly all throughout Scripture that it is laid out for us, when you take the totality of Scripture, that that is an impossibility. That those that have been saved, you're saved for eternity and you cannot lose your salvation. That once you are saved, you, you are always saved if you are saved. I, 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 I want to look at the total of Scripture. Romans 8 one says this, there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For those in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. There's no guilt. 
You've been set free. You've been forgiven completely. There was nothing that you did to get in Christ, so there's nothing you can do to get out of Christ. Now, that doesn't give you a free pass to go and live your life however you want. God's Word does speak of individuals that, that were cleansed, and now they return back to mud. Dogs that, that return back to their vomit. There are individuals who make a profession of faith, but they're not truly followers of Jesus Christ. But individuals that truly place their faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. Romans 8.33 goes on to say, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God justified you, not your works. God keeps you, not your works. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that will sustain you. It goes on to say that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Romans 8, 37 through 39 says this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God Almighty. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are saved. You are bought by the blood of Christ Jesus, and nothing can undo that reality. Jesus even talks about this reality in John 10. In John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Now, if you can lose it, it's not eternal life. If you can lose your salvation, it is not eternal life. Eternity can't be lost. Eternal means eternal. It means it's without end. It means that it goes on and on. It's perpetual. Individuals that teach you can lose your salvation are teaching something that is unbiblical because it's teaching that the life that is given to you by Christ Jesus is an eternal. It's eternal life that he gives us. And they will never perish. They will never perish. That's emphatic in the Greek. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Nobody's robbing Jesus. <laughs> okay? Nobody's robbing Jesus. Nobody can snatch them out of his hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So I don't believe that this passage is talking about the fact that you can lose your salvation because I don't believe that's a reality. I don't believe that's a truth. I don't believe that's a thing. So some interpretations say, well, okay, these are individuals that made a profession of faith in, in Christ, but they weren't truly believers. I don't believe that's who's being addressed in the book of Hebrews. I think these are true individuals that have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. We see this time and time again throughout this book that he is talking to individuals who have made a true profession of faith in Christ Jesus. In fact, you can see a switch from first and second person in verses 1 through 3 to third person in verses 4 through 6, and then a coming back to the first and second person from 9 through 12. In other words, he's saying, you're not these people. I know you've made a good profession of faith. You're not these individuals. But not only that, look at what it is that he says, because I believe this is the heart and the key of understanding this passage. Verse 6. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, not to salvation, to repentance. That sometimes there are individuals who come to a point in their life where they have rejected a teaching of Christ in the area of their life to a point that they won't repent of it. He says they've come back to repentance, not salvation. Followers of Jesus Christ are called to repentance just as much as an individual that is lost is called to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ Jesus. Look at Revelation 2 and 3. Every one of the seven churches that Christ writes to 
says at the end of the letter, you need to repent. Repent. Because if you don't, what's going to happen to your church? What does it say in Revelation 2 and 3? What's he going to do to their lampstands? He's going to put their light out. In other words, you're not going to have a witness to the lost and the dying world because you won't repent of the sin that you allow to creep into your life and into the life of the church. So what ultimately are we talking about here when we say that we are called to steward our salvation and not to squander it? I believe what we see here is true believers that allow themselves to get caught up in such a worldly life that they ruin their witness and they lose their rewards. I believe these are true individuals who come to the bema seat of Christ and they will not have a reward. Now listen to this. Verses 7 and 8, because this is key. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop, produces fruit, it's useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, receives a reward from God. Now let's look at the opposite end of that. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Now a lot of people will say, okay, so it's talking about fire. It's talking about individuals going into the fires of, of hell. They produce thorns and thistles. They don't produce fruit. And so therefore, they, they're going to be thrown in the fires of hell. But there is a refining fire that exists in heaven and not just a tormenting fire that exists in hell. Let me show you what I'm talking about because verse 7 and 8 are the author of Hebrews' way of really linking in what we read in 1 Corinthians through the Apostle Paul in chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 10 through 15, talking about Christians in front of the bema seat of Christ. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. How are you stewarding your salvation? You've been given a foundation that does not shake, a foundation that does not move, a foundation that is not sinking sand. It is a rock. It is perfect. It is the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. How are you building on it? Are you squandering your salvation? Or are you stewarding it? For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, produces fruit in their life, or wood, hay, and straw, thorns and thistles. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, what is that word that we read there in verse 8? But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What does it say about Christians at the bema seat of Christ who squander their salvation? Their work is burned up. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Didn't lose their salvation, but only as through fire. So ultimately, what the author of Hebrews is saying is not that you can lose your salvation, but you can ruin your witness to a lost and a dying world, and your lampstand can be put out, and you can lose your reward at the bema seat of Christ. Not your salvation, but your reward. Did you steward your salvation while you had it here on this earth, or did you squander it by living for the things of the world instead of living for the things of God? Did you produce thorns and thistles, or did you produce fruit? A growing Christian stewards their salvation as opposed to squander. 
Now, we get a little more context into this idea of good works because we need to understand that uh, our salvation is not based upon good works. So I want to bring you to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. Let's look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5 real quick. God's word says in Titus 3, 5, he saved us, talking about God, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So we're not saved by our good works, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it's established in Titus 3, 5, you're not saved by your good works. But just three verses later in Titus 3, 8, he shows us that even though you're not saved by your good works, you're saved for good works. Titus 3.8, just three verses later. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, he just said you're not saved by good works, but here, three verses later, he's talking about the importance of good works because he goes on to say these things are excellent and profitable for people. You weren't saved by good works, but you were saved for good works, and those are the difference between squandering your salvation and stewarding it either producing thorns and thistles by building on the foundation with wood, hay, and straw, or producing fruit by building on the foundation with silver, gold, and precious gems. If you're growing, you have a growing desire in your heart to steward that salvation, what he has given you to use it for his glory. Now, lastly, a growing Christian is anchored, not filled with anxiety. Look with me in verse eight, uh, 19 excuse me, of chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We have this sure and steadfast hope. First Peter will say it's a living hope, and it's Jesus Christ who is the anchor of our soul. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you suffer or deal with anxiety, you're not a good Christian or you're a baby Christian. It's not what I'm saying. I, I struggle with anxiety all the time. Uh, man, I tell you, I, I, I can't turn my brain off sometimes. I can't sleep at night. I just, I have so much that's going on in, in my brain. What about this situation? What about this person? What about this relationship? What, what about this? And uh, I mean, I can get so worked up and how is this going to play out and how is this going to turn out? And, and, and what if we end up being late here? Or what if we, we don't get this done here? And what if, what if this doesn't come through here? And I, I can be a ball of nerves sometimes filled up with anxiety. Anybody else there? Anybody want to give a testimony? I'm, I'm that way. And what I have learned and what God is trying to teach me is this. When I am overwhelmed with anxiety, it is a check engine light that God is putting on in my heart and my soul to tell me, stop trying to be God. Be still and know that I'm God. See, anxiety is us trying to control that relationship, trying to control that situation, trying to control that circumstance that I'm putting myself in the position of God and I've got to figure it all out. I've got to play it out the way that I think is going to be best in my mind instead of just resting and relying upon the fact that God is God. That he and he alone is God. What a beautiful Reality and what a beautiful truth that is. I love the saying that Max Licato has where he says, Blessed is the man who knows there is only one God and stops applying for the position. God's already God. You can rest in Him. Why and in what? What is that sure and steadfast anchor for our souls? Well, 
Verses 17 through 18 tell us. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, my anxiety, oftentimes, what is produced is change. Things can change, potential change, real change, perceived change, all of those different types of things can produce anxiety in my life. But what God's word is saying is that you can have an anchor for your soul because there's two unchangeable things. Now, what are those two unchangeable things that are given to us by God who cannot lie? Well, first, it's the promise, and second, it's the purpose. That God's purpose for his people does not change. That God's promises for his people do not change. Everything else in the world might change, but the purpose of God for you and your life doesn't change. The promise of God for each and every follower of Jesus Christ does not change. His purpose is to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't leave us nor forsake us. His purpose has always been for his people to prosper them and not to harm them. Now, some people will say, well, that, that, that's not meant. That's not meant. That, that word from the Old Testament meant for the church today. Does God's character change? It may look different than it looked in that day, but I guarantee you his purpose for you is not to harm you, but to prosper you because that's who our God is. So when the world is fluctuating, when the waves and the storms are crashing in on you, you've got a foundation that doesn't move. You've got an anchor that holds you to that foundation because you've got a purpose for your life. Listen to me. Don't buy into what the world says, that this life is meaningless, that you have no purpose, you have nothing to contribute to this world. You better not listen to that because that's a lie straight from the enemy. God says, I have a purpose for your life, a grand purpose for your life, a great purpose for your life. It's to conform you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ, so that you can bring glory to him and hopefully others that are in darkness can be brought into his marvelous life. And it's not just a purpose that anchors our soul. It's promises of God that anchors our soul. Promises that says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Promises of God that says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Promises of God that says that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Promises of God that says, look, I'm going to be with you every step of the way, that I'm going to renew your mind, I'm going to transform your life. Promises of God that says that there is an eternal life for all those that are in Christ Jesus. That there is a kingdom, that he's gone away and he's preparing a room, and he's going to come back. And if it wasn't so, he wouldn't have told us. Why? Because God can't lie. And he's going to come back, and he's going to bring us into his kingdom, and he's going to wipe away every tear, and there's going to be no sickness, there's going to be no disease. There's just going to be complete joy and peace in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are filled with anxiety, allow yourself to be anchored to the purpose that God has for your life and the promises that God has made to each and every follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's the reality and the truth, that growing Christians are contributors, not consumers. That they steward their salvation, not squander. And they're anchored to the promises and the purpose that God has for their life, not filled with anxiety because they're trying to fulfill the promises and the purposes in their own power and their own strength and for them to make it look a certain way because they're trying to play God over their own life. Now, I love this, and we're done. It goes on to say, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes... An oath is final for confirmation. So when 
God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That, that idea of fleeing for refuge really comes from the Old Testament where an individual would have accidentally killed somebody. Uh, not intentionally, but they accidentally killed somebody. There were six cities that were called the cities of refuge. Six cities that individuals could flee to and could stay in and be protected by in that city in case there was an avenger of their loved one's blood, they would come after them and try to kill them. The individuals had to go to one of those six cities and they had to stay in that, that city, and if it was found that they truly did, it was accidental, it wasn't intentional, that they killed this individual, that this individual died, they could stay in that city of refuge under the protection and under the provision of God Almighty. And they had to remain there in that city until the high priest died. But once the high priest died, they were completely free. And what God's word is saying is that each and every one of us whether intentional or unintentional. You, 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 you didn't intentionally kill Jesus Christ, but you're responsible for his death. It was your sin that nailed him to that cross. You say, I, I, I didn't mean to do that. There is a place of refuge for you to run to, for you to find protection and provision, for you to find safety and healing. And then ultimately, one day, when Jesus Christ stops being the high priest and comes back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we're going to get to celebrate true freedom as we enter into glory. Have you placed your faith in that Christ?